Have you ever been on a podcast before? No. What do you think it would be like to be on a podcast? Cool. What would make it better? What would you would you be okay being on your dad's podcast? Okay. <laughs> would you would you um, sing on your dad's podcast? Okay. Today, when we hear your voice. Today, when we hear your voice, we won't harden our hearts. We won't harden our hearts today. When we hear your voice today, we we hear your voice. We won't harden our hearts. We won't harden our hearts today. Welcome to the Good Courage Podcast. I'm Jay Gamlin. On today's podcast, we're going to take a look at developmental theory. We're going to observe how we grow from little kids into young people, into young adults, and into adulthood, and how our faith and relationship with the divine transforms and changes alongside with us. So we shouldn't be surprised that things are different now than they were. But before we get started, here's a little moment of gratitude. I am thankful for podcasts, but as Eden, who sang at the start, would say, our favorite podcast is Eleanor Amplified. It's a great podcast. Think of like an old radio drama, but for kids. Um, it's funny. Everybody in my family loves to listen to it. We love the Road Trip Edition because you can go through like all 30 episodes, and I think you're just going to laugh a lot. So check it out, Eleanor Amplified. I think you'll love it. So here it goes. We're going to talk a little bit about developmental theory here. And now, uh, so what developmental theory, uh, developed by many, many uh, uh, psychologists, sociologists, have developed over years and years. You've probably heard of them. These are going to be a, lo- a list of a lot of white men. So um, I apologize for that. I'm, I'm trying to deepen my repertoire past these uh, people. But people like Piaget and Eric Erickson, um, uh, you know what they've generally done is they've um, looked into how people develop emotionally, mentally, socially, and spiritually, and um, and they they've found and discovered a generalized pattern that most people um, follow along. Now, now, you, whenever we talk about these things, we have to speak in generalities and making kind of sweeping generaliz- generalizations uh, because you know we can't go through every, uh, you know, exception to every rule. So we're just going to be speaking in generalizations. Uh, We're also going to lean into the work of several um, uh, theorists who talk about this socially as well. So we're going to be looking um, from Brian McLaren to Richard Rohr to James Fowler to Creasy Dean, um, Kenda Creasy Dean, and, and some of these folks who've also done some developmental work in thinking about how people uh, grow and their um, faith life. And what they found is that there really is a correlation to how they think um, emotionally, developmentally, uh, mentally, developmentally, um, socially, 
uh, developmentally, and this affects how we think spiritually, identif- how we identify spiritually, and there's a parallelism to those two things. Uh, parallelism just meaning that they seem to go hand in hand, that how we developmentally uh, develop in one way is how we develop in the other. So, um, so we're gonna just kind of take a quick look at these things, and I, I'm, I'm, you know, uh, there's gonna be more of this in the book um, that I'm writing, and we're gonna go a little bit more in depth. But the last thing I would present myself as is a developmental psychologist, sociologist. Maybe we should get one on sometime. Anyway, uh, and and but this is just generally what my, uh, what I've looked into and what I've seen in a little bit of my studies. And I find this really fascinating and interesting because it helps really explain like why have I been on this crazy journey of of faith and doubt and structure and deconstruction and reconstruction and 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 how my faith has changed and shaped and how I've gone maybe from no faith to some faith to where is my faith? And I I think there's a lot to think about when we look at where we are developmentally and how that affects us. So uh, we're gonna take a shot at this. And so uh, uh, fasten your seatbelts, friends. Here we go. Okay, so to start off, we're going to look at this in terms of stages of growth. Um, Now, each of these developmental psychologists and uh, faith developmental psychologists have different ways of looking at it. Um, Some have four, some have six, some have two, blah, 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 blah. Generally, though, they follow uh, a a trajectory that we're going to kind of walk ourselves through. I'm going to be using primarily uh, the writing of a faith, um, uh, of a developmental um, faith developmental theorist named James Fowler, who leans heavily on Piaget and uh, the Piaget's stages of um, thinking and development. And so we're going to kind of look mainly through those. Now, this would be, uh, we'll, we'll tap into a little bit of what McLaren writes in Faith After Doubt and his proposed four stages, and also talk a little bit about Richard Ward's two stages, but just generally, just before you get too confused, before I throw you way off, these are generally the same flow of things. So let's start with just stage one. Stage one for Piaget, it's, it's okay, so I'm gonna use big words, please don't blank out, but big words, this is called intuitive projective faith. This is what uh, Fowler calls that first stage. For Piaget, uh, Piaget calls this pre-operational thinking, which means things are just sort of a muddled jumble of thinking and thought that there really isn't a rational trajectory from one thing to the other. That um, these are kids that are living just an experiential life and are and are leaning into people and stories and experiences and kind of and 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 they're just kind of growing into these beautiful little humans. Let me just be honest. Three to seven is one of my favorite ages in the universe. I love this age of kids. The way their little brains work is just fascinating. I I recently did a bunch of interviews with little kids asking them about what Christmas is. And this one kid, I think, really um, highlights exactly what it sounds like. This little this little fella, um, you know, I asked him, hey, what's what's Mary's name? Or maybe rather, uh, what was Jesus' mother's name? And he's like, um, his mother's name is my mom, and my mom's name is Kelly, and I have a bunk bed, and it has one slide and a ladder, and I'm going outside later, and I'm going to play with my friends. It was like this like stream of consciousness kind of like muddled mess of just all sorts of thoughts and ideas that are like rumbling around in there that apparently have like no kind of like rational connection from one thing to the other. I mean, think about that's just how such an innocent perception of how they live in the universe and what sort of interesting thing is flowing through their head. 
um, it's just a very innocent perception of of life, and then and you know, and 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 how they connect. Now, here's the thing about this early, early, early um, age: they are keen observers, and they are watching everything around them, and they're deep. They're taking all this information in in a very deep way, and so it's critical at this time that they are connected to um, people in their life that are high authority people in their life that are going to help lead and guide and direct them. And it's at these critical stages that they're very beginning, uh, that they're at the very beginning of developing their value system. And they cannot do this on their own, that that their, their little brains aren't ready for that. And so they really lean into um, people in their lives, mentors, leaders, teachers, guides, and of course, parents and caregivers who want to help lead and guide them. So you know, you're, you're teaching those basic fundamental things about sharing or you're teaching those basic fundamental things about kindness to the other or or how we live in relationship to each other. And so this early these early, early stages really lean on authority as being critical and mostly because they're just too young to know different and they need to have that kind of critical lens and they need to have those values on them. So, so you know, to, to have that early stage where you're like, nope, we don't do that. This is not how our family does. We all wait and we all wait till we're all seated until we eat, that kind of thing that they develop that over these first few years. And so um, so that's kind of where they are developmentally. Um, and, and, and the way they think about God is a lot of the same way. It's a very, they can hold a lot of disparate ideas of God at the same time that really have no rational connection. Um, and so they, they kind of just hold uh, a God just very loosely. I, in some ways I feel, you know, let me be honest. In some ways I feel like this early, early stage of faith is probably the most pure of you know lacking needing reasonable um uh you know constructs to hold your faith up but just living in this absolute innocence of things are beautiful and mysterious and there are voices in my life that are leading me towards goodness and wholeness and just simply leaning into that that you know when i think childlike this is that age that i think of childlike faith and uh um that you know Jesus um, in in the Bible there's a story that Jesus pulls uh, a child in front of the the disciples and says unless you become like one of these you're not going to understand the kingdom of God and so or the reign of God and uh, and that and that reign uh, that sense of like of just seeing that everything sort of is a little bonkers and it all connects anyway I could be off but I love that I love that stage I love this phase I love working with the preschoolers at the church I work with it's my favorite age um, what happens next is we get into the mythic literal uh, stage of faith, but it's also the stage of development where they begin to identify their own selves. They're, they're beginning to dive into their own identities, and they're beginning to see themselves as separate from the people around them. So developmentally, they're beginning to develop their own cognition, their own understanding, their own sense of their own personality and who they are. Um However, this is very, still very concrete. That's why Piaget calls this stage concrete operational thinking. Um, this person holding very metaphorical and, and, and symbolic images of God can't function at this stage. They can't think in terms of symbolism. Like, um, here's a great example of like when, when my kids are going through this stage of their development, I'll be like, Hey, I'll be inside for just a second. And when I come back out, they'll be like, dad, you were in there longer than just a second. They, they don't see the second as being 
uh, a metaphor or, or or an idiom that is about hey I'm going to be in there just for a little bit of time they 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 think only literally that I mean a second so this is the way that they think about the universe and so they get into the sense of dualism now as uh, dualism uh, describes it's really about left and right up and down, right and wrong, and everything about dualism is that there's a sense of fairness in the universe, and it's very focused on justice and things being fair. So the concept of if you are good, then good things will happen to you is a part of this. If you are bad, then bad things will happen to you. So the, the concept of you are good, but something bad has happened to you, instead of saying, well, that's just life, you would say, well, then I must have done something bad. So there. They live into this really kind of um, very functional um, understanding of themselves and justice and the universe, and um, and they live in that sense of fairness. Um, usually, in terms of faith, God is very anthropomorphic. This is that real keen development of um, God as an old white dude in the sky. It's very hard to conceptualize God as light or God as an idea living in the universe that's bent towards. I mean, that's just would be so far over their head. They wouldn't understand this. This age of life is from seven until as they start to enter into puberty. And as particular hormones and things begin to um, create the second big burst for when their brain grows. So the first burst of brain growth is from ages two, three, four, somewhere right in there. Um, and the second big burst of grain, brain growth, gain growth, whatever, brain growth is when um, they are entering into puberty. And what happens with that is with that brain growth becomes the development of their prefrontal cortex and they begin to think more abstractly. Um, and uh, but, before, but, when we, but when they're entering into that stage, they come into what they call stage three, which is um, a stage where uh, they begin to connect authority with their identity, that they begin to connect um, all of these values, all of those things, and they're connecting that with their own identity. What they do at this point, when you start to have conflict with, those, um, with that authority and your identity, when you start having conflict, you actually double down at this stage on authority. It's what's led you to this place. It kind of creates a foundation, and and so um, when you're when things get a little confusing at the stage, you kind of end up with this very literal um, structure holding onto that simple faith that you had in the previous um, understanding that good equals you know good equals good, bad equals bad, um, good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. So what happens in this is um, what Brian McLaren. Um, and begins to talk about complexity, that you begin to create complex structures to hold those authority, that those, uh, those values that you've, that you've taken as authority into place. So, you know, if you've been told something is right or wrong your whole life, and up to now you've just taken it as a matter of authority that you were told something was right or wrong, and now you're at a stage of going, well, um, there are things... There are now ideas uh, interrupting this. Um, you begin to create structures to help hold up that authority in that central place. Um, for um, for those who've done any um, study into spiral dynamics, you know, so you trust an authority that's a person who says, "I've got the answers. You don't have the answers. Trust me when I tell you." So that's one way to value an authority. The other way is to trust in a sacred text. 
So um, you, you, what you would say to yourself is that the sacred text says this is important, and therefore I, I'm, I'm holding on to that. So that can be like a constitution in governments, that if the constitution says it, this is what we hang on to, or um, this is what my sacred text in a faith sacred text says, and so this is what I lean into. So the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. That kind of concept is what we hold on to. So when you have questions, you go to the authority, the authority tells you what to believe, and you hang on to that authority. Um, Piaget talks about this as being formal operational thinking, where rather than being concrete, where everything is just clearly um, yes or no, or one way or the other, or north or south, we move into a much more um, operational thinking that creates complex structures to hold up your values. So um, this stage three looks like that that idea of like, I'm sorry, it's just not what the Bible says, therefore I cannot accept it as true. Um, or there, uh, without taking in the complexity that the Bible says a lot of different things about a lot of different subjects, and the Bible spends a lot of time contradicting itself and saying that this that they the people were wrong here, and and I think we forget that because we tend to then just uh, pick pieces of our scriptural text and pull those out to help us hold into that synthetic conventional faith that the big words to say that I'm I'm, I'm I'm making, I'm creating a faith that holds all conventions together, that complexity of that faith and creating complex systems to hold on to this. Now let me let me just pause here for just a moment. Stage three, um, this is a stage that is just critical to our life and growth. And um, this is a stage where whether we're developing mentally, emotionally, psychologically, socially, that uh, we uh, that uh, many people have trouble moving past stage three. Um, uh, James Fowler would say that at at least fifty um, percent, if not many more percentage, of of people who are developing their faith never leave stage three. That they're stuck in this stage. Think of it this way: if if you were developing as a person and you leaned on the authority, and you grew up in a, in a, let's say, a fairly healthy household with a fairly healthy system, and your family um, was leading you and guiding you and telling you what your value systems are, and um, and you came to this stage um, that you were that you were kind of in this place of sim- of of holding complex structures to hold on to a simple understanding of yourself and your faith. That there would be a lot of comfort to that. That there is a lure. To, to to holding on to this sort of development, to being in that stage three, because things can be easily found, um, answers can be easily drawn. You simply need to go back to the authority, find out what the authority says, and then trust that as the perfect, full revelation of everything you need to know. Um, unfortunately, um, what happens to most is they lead into a stage four. So most people, most people, um, ha- well, uh, as they develop, let's let's talk just mostly about mentally, emotionally, socially develop. So stage four is the stage where as you enter into your teen years, you're beginning to develop your own personal identity. You want to know what you really think. Now, up to now, you've had authority telling you exactly who you are and what you're supposed to be. And there comes a stage, there comes a place in our life where we say, well, how do I know this is true? You're telling me these things to be true, but I don't know them to be true. 
And so at this stage, we usually see our teens begin to break those relationships with those people in authority around us, typically what I would call a parent, a caregiver, a mentor, um, that they begin to, to reject those, those, um, that word as authority, and they begin to seek their answers elsewhere outside of their authority. They begin to ask well, who, what do I really think? So they begin to test the boundaries of all those values. They tend to test the boundaries of those things that they were told to hang on to. And it's, and it's only by that experiential questioning and, and, and living into those boundaries that they start to develop their own personal identity and their own sense of value. They, um, they, they hang on to those things and, and they do that by testing those boundaries there's a conflict that happens in their head and heart. Um, and so what happens is they begin to lean away from authority and, 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 and people at this age begin to trust in partners. And so teens will begin to trust less of what they see in their parent or mentors or guides or teachers. And they'll begin to lean into what their friends think or um um, people, uh, 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 maybe a coach or a guide, people outside of their of their internal um, realm, and so, so in this age, they're leaning away from authority and into partners. So think about all of the different kind of uh, pop cultural references that do this kind of work. There's, you know, Harry Potter. Um, Harry Potter. Uh, you know, all of the books are about a bunch of teens running around without ever trusting the adults with the experiences they have. I mean, how many Harry Potter books would end really early if Harry Potter trusted in Dumbledore and said, hey, I, I'm hearing these voices. Something really weird's going on. It seems to be creeping through the walls. Help me out with this. But instead doesn't trust telling the adults. Instead thinks the adults are going to think they're stupid and da 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 Instead, he goes to Dingbat Ron and and super smart but very simplistic Hermione to try to divine all their answers. Think about Hunger Games. Um, all kids who who are who are the wise ones and smart ones and the adults are the 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 evil and the dark and the ones who are leading us all in the wrong way and, and we need children to lead us forward. There's a, a book series by Marie Lou called Legend, which is all about 18-year-olds who have morality figured out and all the adults are all wrong. Or, or if you look at all the Disney TV shows, kids are running around who are smart and clever and stuff, and all the adults are just dumb and and they they end up being kind of the comedic foils because they just do everything wrong this is really just a reflection of how students are living in stage four um, they just really have a cynicism towards the old systems they have a cynicism and distrust of the old ways of thinking and being and and they just are they want to abandon all the other the old things so that they can figure out what they really think about this is where we come to that age of um deconstruction. So let's let's talk about that word deconstruction. So when we start to tear down our old systems and be, begin to think about, well, what is it I believe? And we're leaning into partnership. We tend to distance ourselves from that authority and lean into the questions that we have. Now, what happens here is there tends to be 
two options given to people of faith who are in that place of saying, I don't know what, here's what I was always taught, but now I'm doubting everything. And, and the way forward to me seems foggy and unclear. And I used to have this very complex structure holding a very system, simple system of faith in place that God says it, I, I believe it, that settles it. And now all of that's disrupted. And there, there's a, a sense that in the institution of faith structures, whether this is Christian or beyond, in the institution of faith structures, for those people who've grown up in an institution of faith, I should mention, that we're often given two paths, that we're told kind of two paths. Now, most churches exist in that stage three. Most churches exist in you just lean on authority. You just um, believe it because we say it to be true. If you don't believe it, we're going to kick you out. So there becomes a fear-based economy in this stage three, that if you distrust and you move away from authority, then then you're going to lose everything. So if you leave your parents, you're going to be uh, you're going to be gone and and misguided forever. If you leave uh, mother church or your um, place of worship. Um, that if you leave that behind, then you're leaving God behind. And if you leave God behind, you leave your community behind and you and you will be sentenced into the depths of, of Hades or torment or you're, this is where you we will say, oh, you're lost and you need to be found. Those kind of words. Ooh, that's a dangerous word. Um, and, so, and so what most structures do, what most institutions do when somebody's in that faith developmental sense is they'll give you two options. One is you have to come back to stage three. You need to conform. You need to come back and just trust the complex structures uh, of, of a simple faith. Trust uh, authority is going to lead you in the right direction and, and, and lean into letting that authority guide you rather than um, living into that new identity. Um, Think of it this way. Imagine you were growing up in that 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 faith, that fairly faith, healthy, um, not faith, excuse me, that you were growing up in a family system that was fairly healthy, that you're growing up in that family system. And imagine it this way. You're growing up in a family system and uh, you have healthy parents and they've been leading you and guiding you and they've been telling you, uh, this is the way it works, and you have to do it this way, and this is where you're going to go to college, and this is going to be your major, and this is the career you're going to have, and you're always going to live near us. You're not allowed to move away from us, and uh, we're going to decide on who you're going to um, be a partner with in your life, and we're going to decide um, who that partner is and and their gender identity and all the rest. So imagine that that's high-structure environment, and then when you begin to say, well, what if I want to marry somebody else? What if I want to do something else with my life? What if I want a different career? Or what if my career causes me to move in uh, further away from you than you would like? And imagine the parents saying, I'm sorry, that's not the way it works. You conform to us as your authority, um, and, and they do not let them go. And they basically say, if you were to go in a different direction, we're going to disown you as your family. This is often a great metaphor of what we do with our faith at this point. That the family of faith in most institutional models will say you have to conform to a very particular way of thinking. And if you don't conform to this particular way of thinking, then you are out. 
Now, there's a lot of fear in that. And they create a construct that they speak because they believe that they have the authority of God, that they speak, they, be, they believe they speak on behalf of God. And so they believe they can say on God's behalf, who is in and who is out because they have the authority. And they believe that, that they can withhold your own sense of purpose, life, identity, direction, because they hold the authority and you do not. You can hear the imperialism, the colonialism in that, that, that we are right, you are wrong, and we're here to conquer. We're here to conquer you. Um, a lot of battle language that you can hear in this kind of language and these kind of churches that we're going to fight for. We're going to win this nation back. Um, words like that. Um, because we have the authority and we're going to instruct the world. So we're So the first thing they often do is to say, you have to conform to this particular way of thinking. And if you don't, you've got your second path, which is either you conform or you're out, which is abandonment. Either you think the way we're thinking or God does not exist. So those are the, that, do you hear that dualism in that? It's either us or it's nothing. A deep-seated dualism in that structure, that going all the way back to that simple faith. It's We're either right or we're all wrong. Um, you hear a lot of these folks with the slippery, slippery slope arguments where they say, well, if you believe this to be true, then you uh, are going to slide down the slope into destruction and despair and all of the rest. So they, they tend to think not um, in terms of gradients of, of life and faith, but only in yes or no, correct or incorrect, true or false. So, but what do we do then? So in that perplexed state, what I find most of the people who are living in that state, especially these young adults, this is late teens into adulthood, um, typically that reach this stage in their development. Given those two, they believe they can either, they either have to go backwards or they have to abandon. I find that they, they kind of divide themselves between those two directions and many abandon. Many say, well, either you, you tell me to, I either have to believe in uh, a, a literal six-day creation 14,000 years ago or I don't believe in God. Well, I guess I don't believe in God because science points me to think and look and behave in a different direction. And so when we're giving these hardcore dualistic responses to somebody in that period of what McLaren calls perplexity where things become very confusing and not so clear that we're given that usually those two paths and so people hit that stage four and they either go back to stage three or they abandon faith altogether which is why a majority of people stay in stage three all right we're going to take a little break here and uh just have a moment of zen uh this is my um friend chris freeman who, uh, a beautiful, faithful human who plays heavy metal sitar. I love working out to his stuff or chilling out to his stuff, but uh, here's a little flavor of Chris Freeman.
That was Chris Freeman in his album City of God and the aptly named Pre-Liberation March. I love the name of that song. So uh, we've taken a little break to talk about perplexity and we've talked about the two paths that often people in stage three give to people in stage four and that are very com- that are very confused and uh, want them to move backwards. It's at this little point of juncture that I it, that we reach that crisis. Now, crisis in Japanese, I love is two characters. One is dangerous, the other opportunity. I love that. So, at a moment of crisis, uh, we have a path before us. One is dangerous and one an opportunity, and perhaps they're the same path. And uh, what I want to say then is that while we've kind of, uh, in that in that sense of your perplexity, that we feel like there are two paths, one which is towards conformity, one which is towards abandon, I want to propose that there is a third path, and it's a path of transformation. It's a path that leads you forward in understanding more deeply who you are and how you fit in the universe. If you think about this, this is um, that path forward where you begin to settle into thinking, this is how I really feel about the universe and what who I really am in the world. And, and here's, here's the thing. Again, in a family system, when that person is in that space where they are in perplexity and wanting to know where they where they belong, that there is actually something beautiful and holy about the authority in that system, letting that person move forward on that path and allowing them the space to go. When we enter into that stage where we want to spread our own wings and figure out who we are, it's interesting to watch how different people and places in our life, and um, not places, institutions in our life, do with that. And I think it is critical at this stage that the people who are those, those characters of authority in the life of that young person learn how to let them go to do the work that needs to have happen in the stage of perplexity to test their boundaries to to walk beside them and and what happens is we begin to change our stance as one of authority into being more like a partner or a guide somebody who comes alongside and listens and 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 cares for but doesn't do this by exercising rules but rather letting that person figure out their own rules and letting them come to their own conclusions about who they are and their identity. I know this was what it was like for me when I went off to college, uh, leaving that space of thinking that I knew who I was and that I was smarter than my parents and I had things figured out as so many young people do. And going into college and living a life of experimentation and trying things and figuring out where my moral boundaries were and discovering as many do hopefully in that come from a healthy system hopefully that can discover in a healthy system of of leaning into a healthier life and maybe rediscovering those initial 
values that you were given as a young person and coming back to them and saying, yes, these are the values that I want to hold on to. Maybe not the rigidness of that stage three complexity, but maybe back to that being good and being kind and sharing and loving and participating and all of those things that we perhaps we were more like in that stage one of our faith. I am... Um, I recently listened to the biography of Dave Grohl, the drummer of Nirvana and eventual um, leader of the Foo Fighters, and his interesting story and of of um, how he went about his process of discovering his musical voice and identity. and And one of the main characters that comes through is the voice of his mother, a high school teacher. So authority times two, both a parent and a teacher. And what was interesting is that he had gotten to a place in his high school education where he just knew it wasn't where he belonged. And he knew he wanted to go on tour with this band called Scream who had invited him to come. And and at first he said no because he didn't want to disappoint um, his mother, his authority. He didn't want to let her down as a teacher. But the more he thought about it, the more he realized he, he had to go. And when he brought it to his mother, his mother did something really wise. I'm sure she was scared to death, but she said, you need to do what you need to do. And she allowed him the space to go be that drummer. Now it's dangerous for those people in authority. We want the best for the ones we love. We want them to come to a place of, of giftedness and, and, and we want them to know who they are and their identity. But so much of that process means we have to let them work it out for themselves. And then our role is no longer as their authority, but rather their place of safety and comfort that our own role with our our, our children can or, or the ones we love can evolve to a place of partnership rather than authority that that over the time then that that Dave Grohl talks about his relationship with his mom that she was always a voice of wisdom and and kindness and support in his life and uh, that kept them together and it helped him develop that sense of who he was my own life follows the same sort of trajectory. My parents allowed me the space to go be me. And when I had failed miserably and um, left college my sophomore year on academic probation and a complete mess and a giant identity crisis, my parents gave me the grace to do that work and allowed me that space to lead college, leave college and um, figure out who I am and what I was doing. There's a scriptural story with this too. Um, there's a story that Jesus tells that it's often called the prodigal son, but I think a better title is the prodigal father. And I'm going to call it father and son for now because I am a father and I am a son. And so I'm going to identify this personally with my own self and my own story. And it's the story of a man with two sons and the younger comes and says to the father, give me my inheritance now. I can see this as that young son in that place of deep perplexity, who wants to leave authority behind, who probably says, I want what's mine and I'm going to explore myself and who I am in the world. And uh, the father does something just sort of astounding rather than saying, nope, you're out of luck. You're on your own. You're out. If you leave, you can't come back. Um, you know, entering into that conversation with that younger son as a stage three uh, father who says, I'm in charge. You're not. You're an idiot. If you leave, you can never come back. Instead, he does something astounding. 
first of all, the second son's not even allowed to have the inheritance. In the tradition of the age, the inheritance, the total inheritance went to the oldest son who was then um, trusted to share it with the family. But the father, the father gave half his stuff to his younger son and let him go. This is a profound, profound description of what it looks like to be a partner to that person in their age and time of perplexity, to let them go and to let them be in the world. Now it says the younger son disappears and um, goes far away, um, enters into a land. There's a famine there. No one gives him anything to eat, so he has to work for the pigs. And so uh, very briefly, you know, in, in Western culture, we tend to immediately blame the son for losing all his money, but it also could be that there was a famine, and so he had no money because it was expensive. It also could be that nobody shared with him, so he was in a destructive community that wasn't supportive of him. Or it could be because he sent, spelt, uh, sent, um, spent his stuff. So before you start being judgy on the son, just recognize the circumstances in which he was. And it's in this space that I want to just highlight this last little place where the son says, what am I doing here? He's feeding pigs, pigs which are ritually unclean to the, to the Hebrew tradition. And he's feeding the pigs and he says, I should go back to my father. And I will say to my father, father, I have sinned against God and against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Take me in as a servant or, or um, take me in as one of your servants. And so he goes back. Now it says that while he was still far off, the father sees him coming and runs to the son, runs to him and throws his arms around him. Now here's what I want to offer to you. The son, when he said that his, his speech that he had rehearsed, he said, Father, I've sinned against God and against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Please take me in to be one of your servants. Here's what the, here's what the son says when he experiences his father throwing his arms around him. He says, Father, I have sinned against God and I've sinned against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Period. He's in this giant existential identity crisis. And it's at this point that he's realized that his identity has been wrecked and he's in a place of deep, dark despair. And rather than encountering an authority who rejects him, he encounters a space of grace and freedom and welcome. And without earning anything, the father throws his arms around, kisses, hugs him, and they throw a feast for him. Now there's an older son who's mad, a short story boring. He's mad and he gets mad at the dad and says, I've done everything right. I've been in stage three. I've bowed to authority. I've done all the stuff. Why aren't you supporting me? And the father says, you don't get it. That this one has gone through the process of perplexity. This son of ours was gone and didn't know who he was and he's returning to with a better sense of his own identity and self and he's coming home now i don't think that this is a path of conformity i believe this is the path of transformation and that the father is honoring the transformation and is frustrated with the son the older son who is stuck in that stage three act of conformity 
who who feels that wait a minute in fairness and justice he did wrong so bad things are supposed to happen to him why are good things happening to a bad person and can't conceptualize this father of his this i think is the healthy path and uh i think when we move through this spirit of perplexity that there's this third path of moving forward which is transformation that the relationships we are in began to transform our identity begins to transform our language begins to transform our connections to others begins to transform and our faith begins to transform that we begin to enter into a season where we are invited to change and we're invited to be transformed in how we think and feel about god and it's scary because we're leaving the familiar concrete of that simple faith in stage two and the complexity of holding that together in stage three to enter into a completely different realm of faith and we're called to transform in that in that new realm these last two stages just quickly one uh, the next stage that um that uh Fowler calls conjunctive faith, where it's just where we begin to live with a more of a comfort with paradox and that things aren't as clear and that just saying something is right or wrong, it, it is not that clear, that scripture is not that clear. There's places that say that this is right and then later it says that they're wrong, um, that there are places that it says that you shouldn't be this and then in other places it says no, um, it should be. There are places that say that only these people are welcome and then later it says they're welcome. It says in some places you can't eat these foods and then later it lets all those things go. Uh, there, there, there is a complexity to the story of Scripture that I believe follows this path as well. That the early parts of the Old Testament really are living out that stage of one, the stage one where in that Genesis story of things being just sort of beautiful and paradoxical and parabolic and poetic and, 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 and interesting and then moving into creating laws and structures throughout that Old Testament text and the people trusting in law and structure to hold them together and missing out on relationship and then the person of jesus coming and confounding and tearing down um the, the the ways in which we have created laws to keep us in relationship and losing out that sense of no your identity is how you're in relationship and through the death and resurrection um leading all of them into a, a path of deep perplexity that the path forward is not is not conforming to the law but instead transforming in your spirit jesus says i do not want sacrifice i want mercy meaning i don't need your sacrifices i don't need you to to follow particular rules and laws i need you to understand what it means to live with mercy and kindness mercy chesed in the hebrew the the absolute love of the other I don't desire sacrifice. I desire mercy. And and Jesus, even in his own relationship with his his disciples, and John says, I know you, you used to call me master and servant because you weren't in control of your life, but now I call you friend. See, he, oh man, think about it. Even in that moment, Jesus sees the relationship with the disciples transforming from authority into partnership, from master into friend. There has to be, come on now, 
that is just beautiful. And this is the relationship we're called to, that we begin to become more comfortable with paradox. We begin to let go of the complex structures and, and live more into a way of doing life rather than how we do life, leaning more into the way in which we love and care and support rather than the how, the structure, and the rules of how we care and support. We can't be held at this point by any definitive statement of faith, but rather into the the deep mystery of faith when we encounter God as lover, as friend, as guide, as sister, as brother, as other, and, and we live in this tension of doubt and faith coexisting. And, and, and McLaren talks to us as we begin to move towards harmony. And, and it's beautiful. When, for those who are able to enter into the state, you begin to have this sense of peace with yourself and your relationship with God. It's its like the calm after the storm of all that perplexity that you realize you don't have to have it figured all out, that, there, that the rules that we used to apply don't apply, and that is okay, that we live into a deeper sense of our identity as being a child of the divine, of being an offspring with the imprint and DNA of God who is calling us to love and love with abandon um, in the world. And we see that in that. And then finally, we enter into stage six, which is really a universalizing of faith. And it's very rare that people move to this. The, um, this is probably closest to what the, the Buddhist tradition might call nirvana, where you feel a state of oneness between all things and that we're living a, a life exemplified by love. And, and, and we end up holding things lightly, that, that we, be, we worry about holding things with a clenched fist because we see over and over that the things in Scripture that were held with a clenched fist, Jesus was constantly stepping over and beyond. It's really becoming more of a frame of mind than a system of beliefs and seeking a deep understanding and empathy for all people over and above religious law or systems of beliefs. It's really about a universalizing of faith and, and moving into a harmony with all creation. So this really is our developmental moving forward. Now, a couple of real quick things that we can move into traps with this that we might get ourselves um, immediately into that performative Christianity that we believe that we're called to to uh, just you know evolve until we become super Christians. Um, that is such a stage three way of thinking about it, right? You create this complex structure to try to win um, your faith life. It's it's not that. It's allowing yourself to live through the process and trusting that the story of transformation is the end of the story and not abandonment or conformity. Uh, the second thing to just be aware of too is that that um, that the whole process is normal, that we don't need to be afraid of it, that we can embrace it with our head and our heart and our mind and our spirit, that we can that we can um, not be afraid of the process of growing in, into the, 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 the self we are called to be and to trust that there is something in this universe that is um, drawing all things together for good, um, that uh, the, the, the idea that the um, arc of history is long and it's bent towards justice, uh, quote, that is often attributed to Martin Luther King, that I believe there is a, a, a bend in the universe that is pushing us, that I would call a divine presence living in us and through us. So 
this is where we are. Maybe so. Maybe uh, it might behoove you at this point to think about um, where you are um, and and different aspects of your. Oh, you know, a third thing: we can find ourselves all over this map. We can find. I, there's times when I'm just like, I'm just gonna retreat into the comfort of stage three and just be here for a moment. Just to be. I'm just gonna trust that because the disciples said there was a resurrection, there was a resurrection, and I'm just going to trust that today. That is beautiful and healthy and normal. Um, and to, to be able to move towards a more universalizing experience past that can happen, or to move backwards and forwards. It, this is all beautiful in this. When Jesus talks about faith in the Bible, he never says, you with or you without. It's never on or off. It, it, there's none of that dualistic sense of what faith is. Rather, it's more like faith is on that dimmer switch, that sometimes it's burning bright, and sometimes it's not. And that is beautiful and holy and normal. And so allowing ourselves in that space to kind of flow through these stages and recognize them when we're in those crisis moments and, and, and recognizing who to be partnering with as we move forward through those crises moments or, or, or to know that when we can retreat back a little bit and into just leaning on authority but then, but then not allowing ourselves to stay there and move forward. I think this is what a beautiful and life-giving and life-affirming faith is. And uh, really what I want to encourage you, my friend. So I want you to be thinking about this flow of faith. Uh, think about maybe different places in your life that you might have felt in, fell into this. Maybe you are late coming to faith. And so, so some of this is a new experience and thinking through all of this. So maybe even if you're in your 20s, you're at that stage one where it's all just sort of mysterious and unusual and, and irrational. Uh, I don't know. I, there's a lot of ways to think through these stages and to ponder where you are in your faith life. So, my friends, uh, I, I just wanted to encourage you that if you are in the muck, if you are in that place of hard times and you are just struggling to see a way forward and you feel like the only choices are conformity or abandonment, hear these words. Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your heart and mind to, to, to be recreated to, be, to change the shape of your life, to know that this is the pattern. The patterns of this world want power and control and authority. To be transformed is to allow your whole soul to be changed into, into the more beautiful you that you are called to be as an image bearer, as the impression carrier, as the DNA holder of the divine. Thank you so much for spending some time on this podcast with me and letting me share some of these ideas with you. As always, if you have any thoughts, you can always email me at thehouseofgoodcourage at gmail.com. I'd love to hear your reflections. Um, I'd love to hear you call me a heretic. That's how I usually know I'm on the right course, I think. So um, with that, I want to close us out. And, and, you know, when we're on this path and we're in that crisis, it is a path of good courage to go forward, trusting that there's something in front of us. So that's, again, why we lean back on this prayer of good courage. And so I offer this to you, my friends in crisis, as a um, life raft in the troubled waters. So hear these words. O divine, you have called your servants to ventures of which we cannot see the ending on paths as yet untrodden through perils unknown. Give us faith to go out in good courage, not knowing where we go, but only that your hand is leading us and your love supporting us. In the name of love, whose name is Jesus. Amen. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the Good Courage Podcast. I'm Jay Gamlin. All theology and heresy spoken here belong to myself and do not represent any church or institution with which I am affiliated. My thanks to Matt Fagan and his use of this song, When You Go Away. Love you, Matt. I can be reached at thehouseofgoodcourage at gmail.com with any of your thoughts, complaints, diatribes, declarations, and beyond. Thanks for listening. I wish you'd never